Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. This is your girl, Charlie, a.k.a. Charlotte White, here introducing for the first time my dear friend, Alex Churchill. Hello, Alex. So, how did that feel? Oh, did I feel the power. Power. (laughs) (laughs) So, who have we got with us today, Alex? We've got a returning guest today. uh, And (laughs) do you know what makes me laugh? Is that Beth only found out about this the other day. And she basically mm-hmm. lost her shit that she wasn't invited. Um, but she wouldn't want me. <laughs> By the time, you'll realise why no. when we get to the end of this. So we have Josh Proven back today. Hey, Josh. Hello. And today we're going to talk about a man whose name is sewn into the very fabric of modern culture. Mm-hmm. Indeed, you might well be wearing something with his name on it. Chances are you've probably watched a movie or a series recently that was produced or owned by his company. And when considering a holiday, it's just might possible that you've considered... <laughs> the hell that is his very own land yes we are talking about Walt Disney so you can't exist in the world today guys can you without at least being aware of the Disney brand but the man who started it all is a figure of mystery and not necessarily the lovely happy-go-lucky cartoony chap you think he is and which is what we're going to get into and why it's probably best that Beth isn't here Uh, not even Walt himself could put his finger on where this legend ends and where the actual real man begins he said at one point didn't he I'm not Walt Disney anymore he just told a bewildered writer Disney is a thing an image people have so for the record that apparently Josh everyone is called Disney in this podcast so we're going to use first names right yeah that the only way this is going to stay coherent What's your first Disney memory? Mine is going to see Bambi when it was resurrected at a cinema and the cinema not working and one guy who'd taken a day off work getting really shouty at the projectionist. That's my first Disney memory. My goodness. Which one as well, which one is your childhood? The one that, you know, just nailed you when you were the right age and susceptible and became like the one you were obsessed with. Mine was The Little Mermaid. What do you think? This is a very... I used to watch a lot of Disney movies when I was little, um, and I have memories of, of Peter Pan and um, and Bambi as well. Uh, I was but, like, obsessed with Robin Hood. 
Oh, no, Robin Hood was great. It, it's still the best Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You know, Snow White was the first film I ever saw in the cinema. And uh, I'm that old. It came out yeah. in <laughs> uh, But I'd been to pantomime. So I stood up, aged about six, and shouted, Snow White, don't eat the apple. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> I still do. Still do. Uh, obviously, Josh does because he's about to waffle about it for an hour. But Charlie, do you know anything about the man? I don't. I know his name is Walt Disney, and that's it. I've I've have to be honest with you. Uh, I've only heard bad things. Yeah, she's um, I mean, the working it, title for this podcast was Disney was a git. So right. <laughs> I don't think it's going to end well for him. Uh, full disclosure, Zach coined that that's not me i mean anybody who knows when this podcast knows i'm not going to call it a podcast that <laughs> and to be honest with you i uh i i'm not sure if he was 100 maybe we'll let's, find out let's start so he seemed to come from nowhere so what was his background well let's see in, in the 1920s uh any prospective employer would have seen walt's background see using walt here because there's a lot of disney people mm-hmm. And just for, you know, FYI, he's still known as Walton Company Circles as well because of this reason and also because that's how he liked to be addressed. He didn't call him Mr. Disney, he called him Walt. So a prospective employer uh, would have seen Walt's background professionally as that is uh, of a moderately trained, averagely talented draftsman in a commercial art company from a typical hardworking, turn the hand to anything family. He'd been educated, of course, and, and taken art courses which set him apart um, and then even a cartoonist for his high school newspaper in Kansas City before going to France with the ambulance service uh, just missing the actual fighting in World War One because he was actually too young when he tried to join up and then he got then he got um, then he managed to persuade his mother to let him join the ambulance service uh, uh, only to find out she could put his right date of birth down and he had to forge it to, let, to allow him to join up. <laughs> um, but it was nothing particularly ordinary, uh, extraordinary about him. Like you, like you just said, he, he did come from nowhere. It's a very kind of ordinary, very hardworking family he came from. Um, the fairly bland summary, though, didn't quite sit comfortably with this kind of great thing, quite charming, charming um, ice to Eskimos smooth 20-year-old guy who behind the bluster was actually painfully shy, awkward and quite sensitive, uh, but he was, and he was desperate to make something of himself. And this is probably to do with um, how he was brought up. So he, he came from just work, pretty much working class um, and he had a very, very sort of, a very tough upbringing well, I mean, this sounds like the American dream to me, Josh. How did a kid from this tough background with nothing much going for him end up producing the world's best cartoons? Well, it wasn't easy, to say the least. Um, <laughs> the the road to the road to the massive success that you see him in at the end of his life is littered with the speed bumps that tripped him up, but. Everybody who knew him recognized the in him this the the character trait of the guy who gets back up. It so his life sort of fit into a pattern that revealed his mental attitude to success. I mean, his flaws and his um, undefeatable positivity against adversity 
he'd get an idea, he'd dive headfirst into it, uh, at first basically ensuring everybody hated him. Um, and uh, by the end of it, everybody would be just sort of surprised that they hadn't either killed him uh, <laughs> in, in the process of doing it, but then thinking, my goodness, this, you know, he's, there's something special about this guy. So in, let's, let's try, I think that the best way to explain how he got to where he got to is to start in 1923 when he was a failed businessman twice over, um, living with a well-off uncle in California while his older brother Roy was convalescing uh, from about a tuberculosis. Uh, you know, the, the most annoying thing about being washed up at this point was the fact that Walt tasted some success with, with animation. Uh, after a very brief try at independent commercial art with a friend and colleague called Of Iwerks, mm-hmm. you love the names back then, don't yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> He's founded the Lafogram Studio, Fab. based on a series of uh, short cartoon cartoonized uh, fairy tales. And actually, uh, one of the early Lafograms, I think, is the only one uh, where you can actually say Walt Disney drew this. All the rest of the early stuff, you can't actually be 100% sure it was either one of the staff or uh, our bioworks or someone like that. But this had failed basically because of the perennial problems with Watt's business style. He, as I said before, was very demanding and very, uh, very driven, but he had no head for, for proper nuts and bolts business. And he would charge ahead and inevitably trip over something and get in too deep and be unable to get himself out of this, uh, out of trouble. And it, the end result was that despite doing pretty good work and selling stuff and making some money, they never made enough money to allow the business to grow. And it went bankrupt. Mm. And um, he ended up going out to California. Uh, he sold, to get there, he sold his movie camera. That was how bad it had got. Um, and... He That's being out. up the creek without a paddle, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> he sold this thing to get train fare, basically, to go to stay with his uncle, with the idea to try and study how to become a director in Hollywood. Um, and in his case, he had a half-finished uh, short, which was called Alice's, uh, Alice's Wonderland, which blended live action with an hand-drawn animation. Mm. And he, he had this with him, and he went out to California, and he... Um, couldn't get a job. This is this is where he manages to turn stuff around because, as I said before, in California was his brother Roy, and Roy was the guy who did have a business head. And uh, Roy's son, Roy E. Disney, and this is another confusing part. Two <laughs> Roys, <laughs> or is it Roy? I can know that Roy O. Disney. Anyway, Roy O. Roy, and Roy E. Okay, <laughs> Roy Junior. <laughs> Roy, uh, so Roy Senior was the um, was uh, had a head for business, and in his trying to sell this car finished cartoon he had after failing to get a job in Hollywood, he was he found this this distributor called Margaret J Winkler who was one of the first uh, or one of the only female uh, uh, heads of a film uh, distribution company, and she liked this Alice thing. And she was looking for a replacement at the time for, for a uh, very popular cartoon she was distributing called Felix the Cat. Mm-hmm. And I remember Felix the Cat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the pre-Mickey. <laughs> How old are you, Alex? Well, yeah. 
I obviously don't remember the day he vaguely <laughs> remember old cartoons on television. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, I, I don't believe that at all. You look much too you look much too young, Alex, to be to be messing around with this, unless you're a time traveller. Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> create carnage. <laughs> what? A, yeah, it would be funny to to hear what you would like to go and cause trouble doing. <laughs> but Felix the cat was being replaced. We're we're pushing yes, him out. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, he was. He his contract was up with uh, with Winkler, and she needed something new. And she saw this Alice. Uh, she somehow she got a hold of the Alice thing. I think I guess Disney must have actually sent it to her. And um, she said, well, I'll buy uh, as many Alice's as you can make, basically. And so this basically got Disney going, oh, my goodness, I've just got into a hole here. I don't have a company. I don't have a studio. Um, Roy, want to come and help me out here? And they formed the Disney Brothers Company, Walt, uh, Walt Disney Bros. Uh, no, not Walt Disney, Walt Bro Disney Bros Studio, uh, mm -hmm. which is the, the beginning of the Disney company. And from there they start to get on firmer ground because Roy was now on the team. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about their big break. Um, we are going to talk, obviously, about that mouse, but who the hell is Oswald the rabbit? I've never heard of <laughs> <laughs> Very few people uh, know popularly about Oswald the rabbit. <laughs> but you can find him on YouTube if you want to look at some, uh, so, some weird 20s cartoons. Um, so, Winkler buys Alice in Wonderland, basically Alice in Wonderland, the early incarnation of it. This was Walt's big idea. Um, and she was paying pensionly for it as well as $1,500 per episode, I think. And she was, she commissioned six straight off the bat and gave him an advance of the entire sum on the delivery of the first negative. And he... Uh, got his team back together. He got a lot of the Kansas City guys from Laugh-O-Gram to come down to California. The girl who played Alice in those shorts, mm -hmm. uh, she, he flew her down there and her family uh, so she could be in, uh, be in them. And they went into overdrive. And they were making like by for for a couple of years they were sitting pretty 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 actually. Sorry for the redundancy. Um, <laughs> Uh, making these making these fun comedies where Alice would go back go into go into some sort of form of animation to this magical world with all these kooky characters and have uh, you know just silly adventures and the purpose of cartoons at the time was to be shown in front of uh, full length movies because going to the cinema was much more of an event uh, in those days. He was making these for a while, uh, at least until I think. 20, 26, 1926, 1927. And by that time, several new things had happened. First of all, Margaret Winkler wasn't really the boss anymore. Her husband, uh, a guy called Mintz, had uh, kind of taken the running of the, the names. The names are brilliant in the 20s. <laughs> it's just, uh, and um, yeah, he'd taken over the running of the, of the company, basically. And he didn't get on with Walt. Walt, to be fair, was not an easy guy to get along with in business. Mm -hmm. And Mintz just couldn't deal with this prima donna making cartoons in California. And at this time, they had constructed a new character. 
first of all, Walt did, was kind of tired of making the hours short. He was always kind of looking for something new. After he'd successfully done something, he was pretty much, okay, I've done that, what can I do next? And Mintz was also looking for something that was totally animated. So like Felix the Cat. And Oswald, the rabbit, was thought up. Oswald is this weird looking black and white construction of uh, ovals and rounds and really long ears with long feet. And he is, he was developed by Walt Disney and our Biworks. And he- Googled him, Josh, and it's Mickey Mouse with different shaped ears. Very astute, very <laughs> astute of you <laughs> to see that because uh, basically he was, they commissioned him for quite a lot of Oswald shorts, okay. Um, but because Mintz didn't like Walt, when his contract came up, and because all of the staff at the Disney Bros studio were fed up with Walt and his uh, exacting demands and semi-tyrannical way of doing things, um, he was able to hire away practically all of his staff, except for Roy and, uh, and Up. And on the train ride back from the disastrous trip to New York with his wife Lillian to <laughs> negotiate the, the Oswald contract because did, Walt was of the opinion that, you know, Mintz couldn't get on without him and his cartoons. Uh, he was wrong. Mm -hmm. um, he was fuming about, oh, I'm never going to allow anybody to have rights over a character I design again. He was like going, uh, and he was, he was thinking of, um, the story goes, and Lillian Disney told this, that he said, I'm thinking of a mouse named Mortimer. And she was so proud of, of this story because she said, no, I don't like, I don't like Mortimer. Try Mickey. Uh -huh. And he stuck with that. He brought the idea to Ub, who refined it basically by narrowing down Oswald into a mouse. So down come the ears, the body comes D elongates and you get the early Mickey and it's kind of it's supposedly based on a, a rough sketch that Walt did but that's how you get from Oswald to Mickey basically he gets undercut he gets he essentially fails again but he's so mad that he decides I'm just going to do it again and this time it's with Mickey Mouse ah, now he now he's getting a little bit of success he's onto a good thing and uh, we come into perhaps the first bit that our listeners will remember and recognize the silly symphonies. So how do we get from Walt making cartoon shorts with Mickey Mouse to making the feature length feet, the full animated features that the Disney company is now famous for? Uh, we get to that through the same way we got to Mickey. Basically, he was looking for something new. Now, a lot of people would have probably just, you know, done Mickey Mouse cartoons until the cows came home because they were a big deal. It is, it is staggering how impressed people were by Mickey Mouse. I mean, this was an international phenomenon, um, all because he cottoned on to the idea that um, sound had come into motion pictures. And so he thought, well, why can't we do that with a cartoon? And then to synchronize that sound post-production to make sure everything worked smoothly, mm. blew people's minds. When Steamboat Willie, which was actually the third Mickey Mouse cartoon came out, 
you had not just popular crowds saying this is the best thing ever I have to come to the movies just to see Mickey Mouse and people did go to the movies just to see Mickey Mouse by the way um even in Britain uh, he's just whistling on a boat I know <laughs> thinking looking at it now uh it's fascinating to, to think that something like that could be so I mean what even would you compare it to the the, the, the few sort of like the frenzy I, that I've seen about Mickey and people wanting to see this moving drawing, singing and dancing on a boat is, is fascinating. You know, people in Britain, I remember reading, there was somebody in a diary say, wrote that uh, they went out after dinner just to see the mouse. And, uh, it, and it was, yeah, it wasn't just a popular thing. It was high, high level art types. You know, Stone, isn't he, Disney, at this point? Yeah. <laughs> they they equate him at a very high-level artistic um, uh, procedure here. They think he's, he's like a classical composer level of, mm. of artists here. You know, he... Um, who's, who's, the, who's the chap who... Um, who's, the, who's the chap who directed uh, the... Um, you know, the... <laughs> <laughs> is it 1917, you know, the Russian Revolution, the one with the, the, the steps and the... Uh, oh, Sergei Eisenstein. Yeah. Eisenstein saw a Mickey Mouse, or heard about it, and then had to see it, and became obsessed with it. And he went even went out to California just to meet Disney. And, you know, Eisenstein was pretty big, you know, pretty big credit back in the day. Everybody was very impressed with Eisenstein. People were equating Walt Disney with Eisenstein for a three-minute dancing mouse. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially how you get, I mean, to put it in a nutshell, that's how you get to the Silly Symphonies. Silly Symphonies are a progression onto Mickey Mouse where Walt could kind of um, get his team to do stuff that didn't include Mickey, but also to be somewhat more... um, what's it called, technically advanced. So they, he could try things with the City Symphonies he couldn't try with Mickey Mouse. Mm. And the, those two, the success, the success of those two brought in enough capital that he could build a proper studio out in, uh, on Hyperion Avenue in Los Angeles. And it was called the Hyperion Studio. And he could, break, he could you know, hire in a lot, much larger staff, better artists, and, and hugely ambitious. Oh, I mean, yeah. The ambitious, we're talking feature lengths, aren't we? We are indeed. And uh, there was one uh, night in 1934, all the staff were working on the you know, cartoons and stuff at Hyperion were out to dinner. They came back early, which wasn't unusual because they had a lot of work to do. And they were all taken into the screening room where Walt Disney appeared on the stage and acted out the entire movie for them. <laughs> This was, how he, this was how he pitched it. He played every character and people described him as a natural actor. He couldn't memorize stuff, but he would act and play. And he said, and this was how he pitched this, this movie. And people thought he was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, because first of all, who's going to sit through a full length cartoon was what some people said. Uh, there's only been about three or four made up till now. He said, well, we're going to make it in colour for a start. And Roy probably almost shot himself because of the, the amount of money he would have to raise in order to do that. And 
then he was he was like we're going to we're obviously going to do it with our sound system and everything like that we're going to do it with proper sound we're doing going to do it with color and we're not just going to do we're not just going to do what we've been doing with the cartoons we're going to push the envelope and make this a true work of art and that began the four-year process in 1934 of creating Snow White, or as it was known in the press, Disney's Folly, because mm -hmm. they thought it would fail. Yeah. <laughs> they thought it would fail big. He yeah. put every cent of money he had into that. And, uh, you know, by the end of it, the, the women in the ink and paint department were complaining that they were practically going blind, coloring the cells. And nobody knew if... At one point, it almost did run out of money, and he had to show, he had to do one of his one-man shows with the banker, and filling in the stuff that hadn't been done yet. And the banker came out and very dramatically, very just sort of said, "You can have the money," and so that was encouraging. You sit through you walking around on your knees again between pretending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you gotta, yeah, he must have admit, uh, admired the <laughs> admired the dedication. Um, but, but it um, paid off. It, it did. The gamble paid off. It we paid got off them. massively. It made millions of dollars for the studio. It allowed Roy to pay off everything that that had been sewn into it. And some people say that this is the beginning of the golden age of animation. In fact, with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Wow. I mean, so he's now he's now paid off the debts. This is a big thing, and we're going to come back to Walt and money, I think, quite a lot. He's he's solvent at the moment. He's putting into production the next big thing he wants to do. What is what's he like to work for? What what is Walt at this time when he has money? Well, Walt with money was to be one of the good things about Walt Disney is that Walt with money was pretty much Walt without money. Um, he didn't really care about it as a as a commodity or as a desirable thing to have. What he cared about was what he could do with it, um, and with Walt that meant essentially making making movies and buying stuff for his kids, and you get this kind of interesting insight into him with that. So at least he's not particularly money grubbing, although he, he knows he has to make a lot of it in order to do what he wants to do. And he usually, but he, he usually leaves that to Roy. Um, as a boss, therefore, you're not worried so much about him, you know, sort of uh, consciously exploiting you for money. He'll unconsciously exploit you for it, but he won't do it with that in mind. Uh, but he will drive you to the point of insanity and possibly suicide. Um, he was a very hard taskmaster, master, and, you know, he had two sides of Walt Disney, uh, even in private, even the real Walt Disney was like a sort of like dub, uh, two guys. You had the guy at work and you had the guy at home, and he never showed the work Disney to his family. And the work Disney was this weird blend of a guy who wanted to be your friend, but took the liberties of a friend at the same time, basically telling you anything he thought. And obviously he was the boss, so he couldn't really talk back. Um, and 
he there are stories about him there are many stories about Walt Disney working for Walt Disney um, you know, one of the nice things about dealing with somebody from this part of history is that you have so many interviews with with people who knew him mm. so um and there, most of them are on YouTube and things like that. You can check them out and see for yourself what people thought of him. Basically, inner core people, higher level artists and things like that who worked with him, adored him, but knew he was the most difficult guy in the world to work for. And you could, you, you could go, you could work eight months as somebody did on Snow White on a sequence only for at that eighth month for Walt to say, Actually, we need to cut that because I need to go somewhere else with the movie. That In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, he would cut people's, uh, you know, he would cut people's work like that all the time um, and change his mind about what he wanted halfway through something. And then the work would have to be done all over again. And he could, and, and the, the problem with this was, was a lot to do with the fact that he wasn't, he didn't seem able to give praise to people. Um, he found it quite difficult to do that for some reason, perhaps to his, uh, with his upbringing or perhaps he was just so focused on trying to get what his, was in his head into other people's heads that uh, he didn't, he wasn't able to express his, uh, his appreciation properly. But people began, you, you could pretty much bet that anybody who worked for Walt Disney would be it would respect him great a great deal, but would eventually, for the most part, end up um, feeling resentful towards him. What are the biggest um, controversies that kind of muddy the idealized image we have of Walt Disney? The the biggest ones will be this sort of semi tyrannical way he ran the studio, um, and. His and the fact that he was, uh, you know, a white man who um, uh, was born at the beginning of the 20th century and therefore he did carry with him certain views of the world that don't make sense anymore and didn't make sense by the time he died. Um, a lot of that can be seen in the choices he made in his films that he felt nothing was wrong with for instance there's the there's this there's the uh the, the song of the indian camp in, po in uh, peter pan mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, dubious <laughs> dubious well, in its portrayal at best it is a cartoon i get it it's fantasy hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But it, it, Some it, of the South as well. I don't know. That's much Yeah. Better, but yeah. The Song of the South is the biggest one. Um, mm. Now, it's quite difficult to talk about the Song of the South because I've never seen it. And the reason that you've never most people will have never seen it is because the Disney company won't sell it anymore. If anyone is interested in hearing about Song of the South, the production of the of the film and the film itself, because like like yourself, Josh, I don't think I ever saw it. I remember I remember somebody having it on VHS but not being interested in that. I wanted to watch The Little Mermaid again. Um, there is an excellent series about it on um, You Must Remember This, another podcast where she deep dives into it because yeah that's not available anymore and it's a very good thing it's not available anymore i think i may have seen it once i definitely i i know the song zippity doodle because i had to play oh, it yeah when i was very very small we everybody don't. does <laughs> um yeah the song of the south so disney had what disney had no filter when it came to what he wanted to do basically um when he made Song of the South, he wanted to make, he was trying to make American fairy tales. Okay. And you have to also, I guess, get that when he was making, when whenever he made a movie, it had to be Disney-fied, essentially. So no matter what it was, no matter how dark the original story or how dubious the original story, it had to be made into a Disney movie. And you can see the pattern of what is a Disney movie in most of the movies that he was in charge of. But um, so that was how, that was why Song of the South got brought up. It was an American fairy tale, essentially, or a fantasy from, from America. And he didn't listen to any of the, being Walt, he had his own ideas about how to do stuff. And he didn't listen to the African-American thinkers that he uh, originally uh, talked to about making it. And they said, you should make it this way. And he seemed like he was listening, but he really wasn't. And so he went for the usual Disney idealized kind of happy-go-lucky fairy tale story. Unfortunately, it's set on a plantation in the South. And therefore, at, at this time, the civil rights movement was happening as well at the time. And the massive irony of the, the, lead, the lead character um, being unable to attend the own, his own premiere because it was held in Georgia. And at first he reacted, I mean, the thing about him as well was you can kind of tell that he made it because the way he made all of his movies because he thought it was kind of a good idea for animation and stuff. But as when the mixed feedback came back from it, for it, he seemed to realize he'd made some sort of a mistake. And tried to shy away and listen more to what people told them were controversial stories uh, in the future. And you can see that lesson being learned as the movies continue, you get less, you know, get, get, you get less movies that could be considered controversial. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, I mean, we've, we've talked about, we've talked about um, 
Disney the man. We've talked about the the money man who kept the money coming in, his brother Roy. Let's talk about the people who did the actual work and how they were how they were treated by their employer. So there was a team of animators, as I understand, that worked to bring all of Disney's visions to life. And they were nine old men. Tell us about these guys. The nine old men sound, sound like they're actually from a Disney movie, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Doc, happy, lucky. Yeah. Um, they were in a way like the Seven Dwarfs or many of the like, big, <laughs> big, big kind of teams that they had. They were his core animators. Um, and they were uh, people, uh, they were Milt Cole, Mark Davis, Frank Thomas, Eric Larson, Ollie Johnson, Wolfgang Reiterman, Les Clark, Ward Kimball, and John Loonsbury. And these, some of these names are up in the pantheon of animators. Um, today, if you talk to an animator, they'll, they'll probably have one of these guys as their inspiration. They're responsible for some of your most favorite, best loved um, cartoons as a kid. And they were his, they were, his, they were Walt's boys. They were his, they were his, they were his musketeers, you know. They, he could throw anything at them and they would be able to do it. It's also from these guys who worked pretty closely with him that you get insight into who he was, mm. uh, insight into why he made some of the decisions he made and things like that. And a lot of their interviews are very interesting. Um, generally speaking, they all had a very positive opinion of him, although they absolutely recognized his failings and were very frank often when they disagreed with him. Uh, or they thought he'd made a mistake or thought he was being unfair. And they're in a very, very important part of the Walt Disney Company and the, and the movies that were created couldn't have been created without these guys. And indeed, the next generation of Disney artists who, create, who made like The Little Mermaid and The Lion King, Aladdin, some of them were mentored by, by these guys. And so there was a legacy thing going on as well. Did he pay them properly? He paid them very well um, in terms of the fact that he would pay people like the nine old men who were key, mm -hmm. um, key, uh, uh, <laughs> key artists better than he paid other artists. How did he feel when uh, when his staff tried to unionize when he cut <laughs> all he cut all of their pay to pay off some more debts? Yeah. This is the other problem. This is the thing with Walt Disney. He was a king of Disney, you know. Um, he didn't. He 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 felt that he had. He always felt that he had the loyalty of the people who worked for him. They, he didn't think that they were salaried employees. He thought they were like his family or something like that. And and for and of course they weren't. They were people who wanted to like you know feed their families and stuff. So when he did, made these ridiculous calls for the sake of the studio. Um, and and threw a lot of people under the bus naturally they reacted poorly and he did not understand how to deal with it at all um and so in the big animated strike of 1941 um things were just really bad for a while just a deadlock because he wouldn't budge uh and and eventually it had to be sorted out by roy who basically allowed Walt to go off on a, a tour somewhere um, uh, and basically just gave them everything they wanted to, to stop it, which kind of shows you that Roy knew that 
you can't you can't deal with people's salaries in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between those people and the nine old men were that obviously the nine old men, uh, being key animators, head animators, got paid bigger salaries, and um, Walt felt you know there was nothing wrong with that, and he kind of missed the point because he thought it was about people complaining about unfair pay, or rather they were complaining about the way he handled their money. I have to ask, so you've mentioned, we've talked about Song of the South, and we've also mentioned as well um, the idea that he Disneyfies every story he touches. Now, that's a blessing and a curse. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, I mean, anybody who's watched enough Disney movies will know kind of what we're talking about here. Um, the Disney system is a brilliant system for doing animation. It's, it's, it's the system whereby you take a, perf- a perfectly good story, look at it, and say, okay, how the heck am I supposed to animate this? You know, how am I supposed to draw all of this, put it into three acts within 90 minutes or so? And that is how you get it. You get formulaic stuff, like there's, a, there's the love story. And so in, in an actual book, there might not be a love story, but you'll put it in here because it works. And you'll get comic relief characters and arch villains and such. And all of these things are not necessarily reflected or hard pressed in the original material, but they will appear in the Disney movie because that is that the system works to make an animated feature. And so there you get the, 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 the people who, you know, Say, oh no, they've Disneyfied it, er, kind of thing. And then the people who, who, then the animation fans who are saying, well, you know, have you ever tried to make an animated movie? It's not that easy to do, and that is that is Disneyfication. It's the taking of of hallowed, <laughs> hallowed intellectual property and making it something that is specifically Disney. What do we think is the worst example of that? I'm trying to think. Gabby, what well, I mean, obviously. I th- the people who are medievalists will not like the fact that Robin Hood's a fox. <laughs> well, you see, this is, this is the other thing. I mean, <laughs> it's awesome. But do we think it ever didn't work, the whole Disneyfication thing? I mean, okay. I mean, I'll, I'll jump into the ring first off and say, first of all, I like the movie as a movie. All right. Uh, Pocahontas. That's think- the obvious one, isn't it? I mean, and also that Disney Disneyfication of... Just, just making the ending happy because yeah. you look at Pocahontas dead. You look at the Little Mermaid dead. It's like you know, if you, you actually look at the original stories, you wouldn't want to subject your no, kids to exactly, them. Exactly, exactly. I suppose it's not. It's not anywhere near the um, yeah historically accurate, is it? I guess I not, uh... Working, at, I worked at a summer camp that was named after Joan of Arc in the Adirondacks. <laughs> over the shoulder of this mad old biddy in a netball skirt who would read the story of Joan of Arc to the kids once every half and where she'd scrawled out the end with the burning alive bit and just replaced it with a a Joan of Arc actually moved to the Adirondacks and lived happily ever after. (laughs) No. I I don't think even Disney would have done that. (laughs) That's fine, but it's fine in Disney because I think that the thing with Disney, we know what we're getting and he did sell a product and there are, I mean, in terms of sort of subjecting your your children to these things, there are moments of real terror and heartache and loss. There's always a death. Bambi's mum. Bambi's mum's still not over it. Everyone 
I, I even I even tear up with Dumbo, and she doesn't even die. I know. Yeah. Oh no, I can't. What I don't watch this them. song. Awful. It makes you literally want to go and hug your mum to make sure <laughs> she's still there. And then it makes you feel like you're on drugs because of obviously the whole acid thing with the. Mm. <laughs> but that was really experimental those two films are really early Bambi and Dumbo are super early in the canon and yeah. he spent so much money on getting those right because Bambi you're going to love this they showed an early cut of Bambi to a load of students and they laughed when his mum died <gasps> yes they did. what is wrong with people I don't know, I don't know. but it didn't say being about movies did it so after the Second World War, he was looking for different challenges. Um, and unusually for him, it sounds like, he began to get more because he got sidetracked. He went down a rabbit hole, didn't he? Indeed, <laughs> the amusement park gets sown. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, so, you know, he, he's made success with the movies. And as we know from his passion, he's now look, he's probably getting bored. And, you know, people, you know his, his staff is striking and that really killed it. Killed some of the love, to be honest, yeah. for making the movies. After work, it will do yeah. that. He really thought that everybody was kind of like him. You know, they just wanted to make movies and such. Because he did, like I said, he really didn't care about the money. He'd been poor before. He didn't mind being poor. Uh, <laughs> he didn't think anybody else minded either. Um, but so having fallen out of love with that, and after World War II, when the studio made a lot of... Um, propaganda stuff for the American war effort. The studio was actually turned over to the, uh, sort of became a, almost like a base for the US Army. Uh, so interesting. Mm, uh, victory, what is it, victory through air power he made for the United States government, which was explaining to the public how they could win the war in the air and mm. all sorts of stuff like that. All like the nine old men were all involved in all of these, in all of these, um, doing all of these propaganda stuff for the government. Um, he, he went down a rabbit hole um, but not immediately into theme parks. He went into um, trains. Um, and he, for some reason, became obsessed with trains. As a little kid, he'd loved going to watch the trains in Kansas City and Chicago <laughs> and stuff like that. And now he was really rich and he could delegate a lot of the studio work to Roy. And Roy was actually in charge of quite a lot of Cinderella, for instance. Mm. Um, even though, you know, Walt still had direct creative control. And another thing you have to know, you know, about him was everybody respected his decision. And by this point, if Dis Walt Disney said something was wrong, it was probably wrong. The annoying thing about him was he was usually right about that. <laughs> and so he was kind of stepping back from the studio and he was just sort of enjoying being a dad and just chumming around with his friends and his friends when he was like off duty, really liked him he was a nice guy to be around and he just got into this weird thing about trains and actually collecting them and building models and I think he he had one he had a, like a train engine he bought a train engine I think and he put it in the back of his house or something and he had a small scale one called uh Carolwood Express which he would ride around in the back garden with his kids and stuff. And somehow from this kind of physical entertainment that he was providing people, because he would invite people over to look at the trains and play with the trains and such, something, something kind of germinated in that mind of his and then collided with the fact he wanted a place he could take his kids. 
his kids were uh, Diane and Sharon, and he adopted Sharon because his wife uh, was advised not to have any more children after Diane. They um, they didn't. He he wanted a, he wanted a place that they could go. They could have fun, a nice nice sort of just family day out. And mm. when he was thinking about where he could take them, obviously he thought about amusement parks. But at the time, amusement parks had a very bad reputation as being kind of just the place where teenagers hung out, where people drank, where people littered. They were kind of rough and ready places. You could have a good time there, but they weren't really places a family man like Walt Disney would take your kids, take his kids. And he started thinking about, because, you know, he had the kind of brain that worked like, okay, well, how can I fix that? And he decided to, and he started thinking about other places. There's the Trivoli Gardens in Denmark and stuff like that. Parks, amusement parks that were clean and had a kind of a good reputation and you didn't just go there to, uh, I don't know, just sort of mm-hmm. mix with the, the the lower elements of society, which is what, uh, you know, theme parks at the time, amusement parks and carnivals were cheap places of entertainment. You know? They attracted everybody and they weren't necessarily wholesome. Um, and this is where Disneyland came into being. He started cooking up this, this, in, this even more insane idea of making a th- a th- uh, an amusement park. Uh, he was actually told, I think it could have been Roy who actually said, you know, don't, don't get into the amusement park business. It's not mm-hmm. what you want to be involved in. It's, they're not nice places. Um, he was right. Seriously, I've never seen so many miserable parents and miserable children. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> may, maybe it wasn't always that way. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I, 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 went to, I went to Disney World when I was little, so I have fond memories of the place. Uh, yeah, I, so. I took children, and that is not fond memories. That well, is- I advise, therefore, don't go... With children, if you don't like children, <laughs> I, see. I I haven't been. I haven't been, but I I need a yeah. I need a friend who will go with me. So I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I'm going to tap up Beth for this for a, for a girly weekend. You'd want me or Beth, I think. Okay. <laughs> we'll we'll go the three of us. Now look, despite despite the fame of Disneyland today or Disneyland yeah. mm. today, um, it, it the opening didn't go smoothly. Did it? No, tell no, us, no. tell exactly. us what went wrong. We want to know what went wrong. Stories. Everything yeah. went wrong. It's a Everything. joke in Jurassic Park, isn't it? Yeah. It opened when Disneyland opened either, but the attractions didn't eat the tourists. Yeah. They, oh. <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> well, well put, Alex. Well put. Problems <laughs> line in the first yeah. part. The um the yeah the yeah he. Uh, yeah, when everything's going wrong, what's uh, Attenborough says, uh, you know, when when Disneyland opened, everything went wrong, you know, and then Jeff Goldblum says, yeah, but when when Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, <laughs> they don't eat the tourists. <laughs> yeah, everything went wrong. It was amazingly, it was a, it was so Disney. It was such a Walt Disney thing for everything to go wrong, and yet for him to basically just ignore that it did all go wrong and press forward. Um, first of all, it was an immense thing to fund and he funded it through TV, which was um, another one of his kind of, uh, uh, I need the money to do something. Uh, what's the newest thing I can do and do better than other people? And TV was that. So he made these lavish TV shows, uh, which he themed, 
which he called Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And every show would either be from Frontierland, from Adventureland, from Fantasyland, or from Tomorrowland. And so immediately what you're doing there is really clever, is you're getting masses of money from, uh, the, from the cable TV company commissioning Walt Disney, because, you know, he was gold to get you making, you know, get get to make stuff for you. Uh, and, um, and at the same time, you're selling the park, you know. When people went to the park, they would make that connection. Oh, Frontierlands, I know this stuff. This is where that character lives. This is where that character yeah. lives. And, but nevertheless, the execution of doing it once they had the money was quite problematic. Um, nothing was ready pretty much. On the day before, he himself was down there painting stuff and hammering nails into it. Um, At first, I mean, at first I believe you had to pay for the rides and some Disney, people who know about Disney news will know that that's kind of a thing again. Um, And, you know, uh, every ride broke down, lines got out of control and it was all done for TV mm. as well. There were TV cameras there. I think Ronald Reagan was there when he wasn't the president. <laughs> he, was the act, he was an actor. The governor of California, I think, showed up. And Walt Disney was there doing this, all this, all this kind of talking to the camera, showing people around. And behind the scenes, everybody was dying as everything was just, just going, just, 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 just failing miserably. The asphalt hadn't properly set on Main Street <laughs> and melt started to melt. And so people were losing their shoes as they crossed the street. Really? And they ran out of food, I think, halfway through the day. And by all quantifiable measures of how you would grade an opening, the opening of, Walt, uh, of Disneyland would not have been a success, but Walt played it for a success. Of course he, he did. And he improved it. And he improved it at the World's Fair. Uh, where you get where he tested new technology like audio animatronics and um, the 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 boat this the ride system that gets you a small world that allows you to like put like what is it something stupid like seven thousand people an hour or something like that in through the ride and so he was able to improve it but yeah the the initial the initial opening was not smooth at all he really pushed the envelope at all all points during his career he's always looking at the next bit of technology the next bit of kit and always developing always innovating what plans did he have for the future at this point Mm, uh, the plans he had for the future was epcot Uh, epcot people epcot is a what is today one of the parks in walt disney world in florida it's the second part park that was uh, opened in um i think it was 81 and it's it's an acronym it stands for the experimental prototype uh community of tomorrow or something like that and the reason it's called that is because i think that was uh, as he said in one of his tv programs uh, that was the name they were going to give the city he was going to build epcot was meant to be an actual town a city a modern uh-huh. city he, he, he had successfully managed to get bring Disneyland to something workable. And he now felt he could build a community where people could live. And so everything you see, a lot of the elements you see in Disney World and Disneyland were elements that were thought up because he was trying to actually build a city for people to live in. 
And so the monorails and people movies that you have in the Disneyland and the Magic and uh, Magic Kingdom and Disney World were supposed to actually be transportation to replace um, to to get people into work in the morning. And uh, there were huge plans of um, basically Epcot, the park itself area being kind of the downtown working district and people would come in from exterior sort of suburb bits and um that it was a huge project and he was deadly serious about doing it as well and to be honest with you given his record he probably would have done it and it would have been fascinating to see whether he could have pulled it off but unfortunately um his uh he he life caught up with him and uh, he did not live to push it through. When he dies, he's, he's left the world with this kind of legend of himself that sort of hides a lot of the reality because he, as he said himself, Disney is an image. Disney isn't the man himself. What do you think he'd make of his legacy, which is a complete, I mean, Disney now owns Star Wars, they own Marvel, Marvel. they are a behemoth in the entertainment industry. What do you think he'd make of that? That is a, a very good question. I, I don't feel qualified really to answer it. I think proper people who've written biographies of him might have a better handle on how he would think about how things have gone. I think, to be honest, I think he would like some things. He would love the technology that we can do nowadays. He'd probably be disappointed that not more of it is being utilized. I think he would probably have been friends with people like Steve Jobs and stuff like that. And um, he, but at the same time, and you echoed this a little before, the issues with, with Disneyland and things like that today, he would be very, I think would be very disappointed in because he was a control freak and he wanted things to work, even if they didn't work at first. Uh, and you know, the, the, the issues with the company today, he would, he would probably be losing his mind over it. <laughs> but his legacy, he was conscious of it, because as you said, he said that, you know, I, I'm not Walt Disney. Well, I do things Walt Disney doesn't do. You know, I swear, I smoke. Um, Walt Disney doesn't do those things. Um, but what he actually felt about it properly, because he because he disassociated himself with the Walt Disney, which was kind of a character he played. And in a way, even, even to the extent that Mickey Mouse is often thought of as, as a sort of like his alter ego. And that Mickey, if you watch Mickey Mouse, you're kind of watching Walt Disney. I'm not really sure even if he'd have had an opinion on it. He'd have just probably been trying to say what, well, what, how can I use this new technology you all have now to do stuff? Continuing to play the grand, the grand old man with the big smile and the twinkly eyes, Uncle Walt, for people who then who, who expected that, expected to see that. Josh, thank you so much for coming and telling us all about this incredibly complicated individual. I think we can all agree that, that Walt Disney will forever be interesting mm-hmm. to to discuss um, for, for all of the amazing things that he left us and for all of the bonkers person he was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, a, I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. So uh, very happy to, um, for all his faults, um, 
I, I like to I like to I prefer to look at people as a whole rather than just look at whether they're good or bad. So I'm a fan and I was really happy that you all agreed to come and talk about Walt Disney today. Uh, sorry, Beth. I, I thought you were CC'd into <laughs> into <laughs> the idea. She's just pissy because she didn't get to be in the cartoon and be a princess. Uh, <laughs> Poor Beth. <laughs> I think we should also briefly I think we should also briefly say that uh, I think the Disney princes get a, a rum deal as well. That's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, if there was that hypothetical in the pub, if you if you had to get together with a cartoon, like a Disney cartoon, who would it be? I always had a thing for the prince in um, Sleeping Beauty, but I don't know, Prince Eric, I think. Mm-hmm. Prince Philip. Yes, Prince Philip. That was Prince Philip. Yeah, I did. I liked the traditional. Isn't thing. that a great movie as well, though? Isn't that a beautiful movie? That's my favourite. It's, it's stunning. The whole the whole animation of that was based on medieval tapestries, and yeah. to watch how they did that is just. And actually, uh, one thing that was beautiful at Paris was the castle. Yeah. <laughs> Inside, they've done like stained glass windows with the scenes from the film as well. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. cool if you can block out the fucking noise, Josh. If you had to marry a Disney princess. Oh wow. Um... It's not, weirdly enough, it's not something I've actually thought about before. Um, I guess either, I guess either Belle or Jasmine. I definitely, oh, definitely the Beast. But <laughs> post, post Beast, no, no, hear me out. Post Beast, he's, he's got some anger control issues, but he deals with them. Post Beast, that chateau is fit. It is, but I've never been so disappointed in my life as the first time I saw that. And he turned into the bloke. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I was thinking this myself. It's like you get, you get used to the big, furry, angry beast thing. And then he turns Josh, into... Josh, Josh, come on. I'm shallow. It's the library. Uh, of course. It's the library. <laughs> Josh, thank you very much. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.